Welcome to Choosing Better, conversations about wacky ideas, economics, and the art of living well. Enoch, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Tim. Oh, man. I'm so excited for this episode to kick off. And I want to ask the question just at the very beginning. Did you make any good choices or poor choices this morning? You know what? I think I did. I think I did. You want to hear about it? Walk me through one. All right. Yeah. So uh, there was some nasty press about Wheaton, as so often is the case, about how we are um, going super liberal. We're on the we're on the rank and file list. And uh, and I read the article, and it seemed like uh, a potential college parent who is very very concerned about their child as they should be. Uh, and I realized, you know, this is a brother in Christ. So I sent him an email and just told him that I'm also concerned about Christian higher ed. And I wrote about my experience and I told him I'd love to hear about theirs. And I'm hoping that they send me an email back and we'll see if we can have a, a fruitful conversation. So you chose to engage. Chose to engage. Chose to engage. And yeah, and I think an, an, a natural initial response is to like want to defend against attack. But I don't think this was attack. I think this was like interested dad who deeply cared about their children's outcomes. And I can totally relate to that. So trying to engage fruitfully in a way that demonstrates that we care about the same things. Like we're on the same team. All right. That's good. That's good. Well, so this morning I, I made a choice as well. I want to hear about it. Yeah. So I was riding my bike to work and I was a little bit late. So I was riding fast. Okay. And a student was in their car. And oh, no. oh, I know, I know I, they stopped. I thought they're going to drop the passenger off. And at the last minute they turned left into a parking spot without their turn signal. Were you occupying that parking spot? I was occupying the left space of the, where, where the car was going to turn toward. So I suddenly had the choice of either T-boning their car or ditching into the curb. So I chose to ditch the curb. So I did the old tuck and roll. Had a pretty hard crash. I haven't crashed my bike in probably about five years. Were you wearing a helmet Tim? I, don't, I was not. Oh no! I was not wearing oh, a helmet. No. However, however, bring back the eighties. However, <laughs> bring back the eighties. However, uh, I only happened to hurt my body. My head was my head okay. is fine. Protected. Exactly. Divinely. So thank, thankfully, no TBI. But my choice though. So here's my choice though. I popped up, and to be honest, I was um, a little bit bothered that the two people in the car did not. They, they froze. And they okay. did not ask me if I was okay. Okay. And they did not engage me. Yeah. And I at all. At all. It like, did not I, acknowledge that you had just jumped off your bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there's pedestrians who did. I had multiple student pedestrians say, "Hey, are you okay?" And to be honest, I was from that classic sense of embarrassment. Sure. Right. Right. Classic. Um, classic. So I I actually I remember staring at the people in the car, thinking, "Do I use this as a, up on quotes teaching moment, but maybe more of a reprimanding moment, or do I uh, just keep going on my way?" And I chose to go my way. All right. How do you feel about your choice? I think it was a good choice. Good choice. It <laughs> was a little heated. I was, I was a little heated. I was a little heated. I think it would not have been the most neutral approach for, for me. Um, it probably would not have been a positive engagement. It might have been a little bit more of a negative engagement. Good for you, Tim. So I, 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 I went my way. Um, but I was a little shaken up. I bet. I had my meeting with with, with, with someone, and I uh, actually was like shaking physically for a little bit because wow. I haven't crashed. In a Did while. you let him know? Uh, I did. I said, hey, just let you know, I just uh, crashed my bike, so I hope uh, I don't look like I'm too distracted. Sure. But it went, went fine. And then, you know what? I calmed down, had a little laugh about it. Um, yeah. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're still here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So I guess the question, sometimes it's, sometimes it's wise maybe to choose not to engage. 
I think that that sounds wise. That sounds like a good choice. Choosing yeah. better. Choosing better. Choosing better. I guess maybe we'll share poor choices later. I guess okay. my choice to to to, to go I pl- fast. I have plenty of those. Plenty of those. This, this is like this is like the social media of, of choice revealing. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> so our topic today is about scarcity. 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 Love it. Well, I, I, you should. You're an economist. Core econ concept. This is the fundamental in your bones. Uh, me as a lowly political scientist, I have to I have to be illuminated to such a concept. But you just you, it's innate to you. It's self-evident, right? Part of the dismal science. <laughs> Part of the dismal science. Here we are. So I, I, have, I have a couple of trivia questions for you. Oh man, okay. Here My first go. one is, um, what spice, what spice right now is extremely common. I mean, as a matter of fact, I don't think anyone's gonna police your use of the spice, but not too long ago, you know, it was a few, couple hundred years ago, uh, this spice is one of the most expensive spices pound for pound, and it's home to one particular small island subsection group of Indonesia. Oh man, no, I was gonna get salt, but then you threw me off at that last part. I I bet I did, yeah. Uh, Actually, I think even more rare than salt, because salt is much more ubiquitous. Salt is very ubiquitous. Now it's downright common, but, and and this spice actually is fairly common as well, because it's been transplanted through a colony. Is it pepper? Not pepper. I don't know. Uh, You might use it possibly in a hot beverage around Christmas time. Oh, nutmeg? That's correct. Wow. Yeah, there you go, native Indonesia. Can I ask one more? Yes. I'll, I'll reveal my ignorance publicly. Please. <laughs> well, no. So I was looking up the real price of oil. So adjusted for inflation. Okay. Yeah. The other day I was having a conversation with my neighbor about solar panels. And they said, well, you should put solar panels on. <laughs> Interesting. You should talk about solar panels, Tim. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, did you choose solar panels recently? I, I, they're, they are installed awaiting inspection. Awaiting inspection. So they're not plugged in yet. We have two hours of testable use. We have 30 minutes of allowed time yet left, but uh, yes, they're not currently plugged in. Wow, how, how, did it feel pretty ecstatic about being I wasn't even home when they were testing it, so. Oh, but I'm excited, I'm excited, yeah. Excited, yeah, so I, I, my neighbor's saying, we should surely get solar panels. After all, the price of energy always goes up. And I said, well, does it? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't, and you know, I, I and he was, the moment I brought up like, well, sure, maybe you paid 80 cents a gallon, you know, many, many, many years ago, but in real terms, you, that's, that's, that's a lot. He said, oh, I guess you're right. So my question is this, uh, at what point in time in the United States was oil the most expensive when you adjust for inflation? Mm, was it the early 70s oil crisis? It's actually not, I would have guessed the same thing. Okay. Actually, that's the second highest peak. Super early on? No. Well, my the, the data I saw was only since 1950. Yeah, since 1950. Yeah, yeah. So. Take a post World War II gander. Thinking. Is it in the two thousands? It sure is. Okay. I know. Surprise, surprise. Wow. Yeah. I know it was over a hundred. Uh, two thousand five and six. Oh, you're a little bit too early. Seven. So, oh wait. Oh wait. Okay. Yeah, during during the beginning of the recession, the the price skyrocketed. That fell very quickly. Okay. Although, interestingly enough, uh, what is the biggest drop in? So what is the biggest drop in percent uh, within only a one-month period? So one month period. can you guess that time period? That COVID? It, it has to be during COVID. Unbelievable. It was, it was a wild, wild drop. Yeah. Yeah. It dropped by, by, by quite a bit. Unrefined, it went negative, didn't it? <clears throat> it did. Yeah. Actually, yeah, people literally had to get paid to take oil. To is hold that, it. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And yet, you know, you think the oil is always going to be more and more expensive, right? Well, I don't think that, Tim. 
I've heard some people think that. Yeah, maybe one or two people. I heard a few that. people think that. Few people, your neighbor. Yeah. So I do want to talk, though, about scarcity because uh, you have been thinking about this topic for quite some time. I have. I, I mean, yeah. scarcity is the core of economics. It is. But you've been thinking about it in a way that I think is quite unique to many economists because you've been thinking about how scarcity, because I think most economists think about scarcity as just being a, a present and just a law, a fact. Mm -hmm. And I think you've been thinking about scarcity as something that might be a normative good. I have, I have. I've been thinking about it, but before we go in that, oh. I think we should define scarcity. Well, I think that might be oh. your... Yeah, but Can I define it? I would like you to do All it. right, so without scarcity, economics doesn't exist. So I have reflected to my students several times that it's kind of ironic that uh, something not existing, not having enough of something is the reason why my discipline exists. I said it better in class, but... <laughs> That didn't come across. Well, the problem is you're on sabbatical, so you don't have that yeah, chance to practice that. Yeah, I haven't that. channeled it for, for yeah, months. Yeah, it's a little difficult. Yeah, yeah. We're getting uh, a little bit rusty right now. Getting a little rusty. We're getting deep. that rust out. Okay, so scarcity. Yeah. Scarcity isn't a absolute contest, a concept. It's not about a level of something. It's not about how much you have something. Uh, the ratio of oil, let's use oil, to nuclear waste is more than 100,000 drops of oil per every drop of nuclear waste. Wow. But oil is scarce and nuclear waste is not scarce because it's a relative concept. So the idea of scarcity is having less of a resource freely available than things you want to do with that resource. We have more nuclear waste than we know what to do with. For a brief period of time, we had more unrefined oil than people who had good uses for that unrefined oil. So in that moment, unrefined oil was not scarce. But since there are so many people right now who want to use uh, oil is a form of energy. It is a scarce resource. There's more people who would want it if it were free than the amount of oil available. And so we choose to ration it, at least in our society, by through prices. So that's what the idea of scarcity is. And other things that are scarce are your time, your energy. I think recently we've really become aware of how scarce our attention is. Like, have you ever been on a phone, say, and your kid is talking to you and you realize you can only do one or the other? I, I, once or twice it's happened to me. Oh, man. Once you, or are, twice. you are a saint. I know. Just a few times. I'm very impressed. Oh, well, it's mainly because my kids just don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I can imagine the Taylor household. No talking. That's right. No talking to Taylor household. Mm, yeah, no, not permitted. So, would you actually, maybe this might be helpful too, Enoch. Could you maybe use, as a way to flush out scarcity a little more, could you maybe discuss like uh, the water paradox and diamond, water and diamond paradox? Okay, sure. So, yeah. So Adam Smith famously observed in his book, An Inquiry into the Reasons and Cause for the Wealth of Nations, Differences in the Wealth of Nations, he um, observes that water is necessary for survival. Without it, we would die very quickly. Diamonds seem superfluous. We hardly need them for our day-to-day -day functioning. And yet diamonds are expensive, water is not. And so he asks the question pretty reasonably, what causes a price to be a price? Why is why is why are diamonds considered so precious and water is just wasted? And the conclusion he comes to is that water is relatively abundant, even though it's so absolutely necessary for life. We still have at least in his time more of it freely available than the amount that people wanted to consume, and so there didn't have to be a price to uh, determine who got to access the water. Whereas diamonds, even though most of us don't need them most of the time or don't even want don't even care for using them, showing them off most of the time, uh, there are so few available that it, they must be 
allocated somehow. There are more people who want to use them than available, so we choose to allocate them via prices, and those prices are really high because some people are willing to pay a whole lot of money for them. So they're very scarce relative to the desired uses of them. And yet, if one was dying of thirst, they would give all the diamonds they had in their possession. That's right. For in that moment, moment, the water would be scarce. In that moment, that's right. So let's turn it, because I think many people um, view scarcity as an absolute problem. Sure. And a downright evil. Yep. And extremely problematic. As a matter of fact, at Wheaton College, I think that we work with many colleagues who would view scarcity as an absolute evil, uh, a result of the fall. Mm-hmm. And so our conversation today is going to be something that you and I have talked offline quite a bit about. I know you've given much thought to this uh, because you have, um, you've written about this and you also have even been featured in a poem That's right. about this very concept, <laughs> That's I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. A poem yeah. I did not write. No. Our beloved, beloved provost wrote a poem because she was so touched about how you articulated the beauty of scarcity. I, I, do, I have come to believe that in a fallen world, scarcity is a type of mercy, at least on occasion. Not all forms of scarcity. I don't want to uh, make light of the deleterious effects of like extreme poverty or other forms of scarcity. They're really, really painful. I don't at all want to say that that's not that all forms of scarcity are good. But I do want to say that there are that scarcity existing is an incredible mercy, in my opinion on several different levels. So let's walk through it. Because I, I have some thoughts I want to share as well about, about scarcity and, and, and even do some thinking about what it would look like to have a non-scarce world, which I think actually would be very, very, very problematic <laughs> to have that. I, I, think, I think I first want to say that <clears throat> I think many people unintentionally associate scarcity with shortage. And I think when they hear the word scarcity, they just automatically assume shortage and that there's a lack of something and people are starving, for example. So you hear the word scarcity, they say, oh yeah, scarcity and shortage is the same thing. And when there's a famine, for example, that's scarcity. And I think that you are able to actually see that the two things aren't the same. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Scarcity definitely, or shortage is an example of scarcity, but it's not the whole of scarcity. That's right. It's a subset within it. So can you can you kind of walk through how, I actually would love to have you phrase it too, scarcity being a mercy. So what's one of these mercies? All right. So the first one I was thinking about, there's this odd verse at the end of the fall, the account of the fall in Genesis, it's chapter three. It says, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And this verse always struck me as kind of oddly jealous or punitive of uh, an infinite God in further punishing Adam and Eve after he's laid out all these curses to the serpent, the woman and the man. And I've come to change my view of that. So one form of scarcity is a finiteness to our time. Time is not infinite. And the reason I think, I think that we have an intuition for this that comes, uh, that appears in a lot of different contexts. Um, You probably have seen it in stories. So I just read the short story, The Immortal by, I don't know if it's Borges or Bor, the Argentinian author. Uh, And and he has a, a great quote. So let me, let me see if I can find it. So among the immortals, on the other hand, every act, every thought is the echo of others that preceded it in the past. Nothing can occur but once. Nothing is in peril of being lost. However, for the mortal men, he says, death or reference to death makes men precious and pathetic. Their ghostliness is touching. Their, an act they perform may be their last. There's something about the scarcity of our time that makes it beautiful that makes it uh, amazing and now in this in this account uh, this uh, imagined short story of a couple people attaining mortality um, 
they're reduced to these very apathetic, I think it's troglodytes. Is that how you say? Oh, how do we know? Uh, cave dwellers, yeah. like a, a lesser form of humanity. Um, there's just no purpose to anything because they've, they have more time available than truly worthy things of time. And once we were separated from God, I think we cease to have infinite good uses of our time. So to continue to have infinite time without worthy uses of that time, I think we might call that hell. That's, that's actually, I think one can, one can intuitively understand what you're saying, though. I mean, not everyone's a parent, but you and I are both fathers. Mm-hmm. And I think that we notice, like, time is finite with our children. Our children do age, and they, in particular, leave stages. Mm-hmm. And that makes one deeply value the stages they're in, mm-hmm. knowing full well it's going to come. To, it's, going to, it's going to terminate. The toddler will eventually no longer be a toddler. That's right. Which makes one long for those toddler years. Yes. Right? Although if the toddler's extended forever, one might be like, well, what? That might be what hell. are we doing? That could be it. Another, another, could, another circle. That could be, which actually is so fascinating because I think my most exhausting days were actually days of having a toddler, mm-hmm. but simultaneously knowing full well that they are temporary and that they will end. Actually, it is a mercy. It makes the, actually the complete and total exhausting nature of raising a toddler or toddlers, maybe plural, uh, it makes it worthwhile because Beautiful. you know this is, this is temporary. Precious. Precious. That's right. Precious. That's right. It's great. So, you know, I, I'm going to maybe push a little bit, though. Please do. Because I want to ask, like, because you're implicitly bringing up that this is all post-fall. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm kind of on the, on the opinion. Cause I remember when you and I first saw this maybe several years ago, because um, I was attending a seminar and someone brought this this uh, kind of notion that uh, the fall calls, caused scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't think that's true. Like, I, I just, first of all, I can't imagine an infinite self before the fall. I don't think humans are, were designed or created to be infinite. So time was probably still, there's still finite use of time pre, pre-fall, right? Uh, I think the combination of location and time. Yeah. That's right. That's it, Yes, exactly. Because like the idea of like infinite would also be like, I can be here or there. Can, can, you, can you speak to maybe how scarcity also is a way to signal to somebody else uh, your appreciation of them, the fact that scarcity can actually be used as a way to actually communicate importance. Yeah, so I think a second thing is that we have imperfect information. There's that song uh, by the extremes, they say, you know, it's saying, uh, I, uh, what is it? More Than Words, I think is the name of the song. Oh, I wish I could help you out. You're, you're, you're outside of my I'm not going to sing. Home. I'm not going to oh, sing. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I was hoping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it says saying I love you are not the words I want to hear you say. I, I, I want, and, and in essence, the singers are saying, uh, it's too easy to say I love you. I want you to show me that you love me through your actions, through your scarce resources. And words are, are often not as scarce as, our, as some of these other more scarce things like our time and our, and our energy, our attention. Um, and so I think with imperfect information, we often wonder, does, does she really love me? Do they really care about me? Am I truly important to them? And I think costly examples uh, of people demonstrating that they do care about us is really meaningful. So like, you know, economists are often lumped together with Scrooge on on gifts because we realize that often gift giving can be very inefficient. But I think one of the things that gifts communicate in a way that cash doesn't is that they require some of this very precious resource of time to be spent on the individual. And the mechanism through which we internalize their love is that they gave up something really valuable to them and they thought we were worth it. I think that's the core like beauty of marriage is that we're dramatically sacrificing a huge portion of our time and attention for one person. If you were married, to, if you had the time and you could give your, your 
attention to a thousand different people, marriage would be a much less meaningful thing. And I think ultimately in the incarnation, God credibly reveals his love for us by giving his one and only son. It's not that he gave one of billions of children. And so that allows us in an imperfect information world to really know the love of the father. Yeah, you know, you know, this is, as you speak, this is like, in my mind, I have this image. There's a film called Her that came out several years ago okay. about an operating um, system that's like plugged into the main character's ear. Okay. Do you know this film at all? No. Okay, so the main character falls in love with this OS. Okay. And his OS actually and so has, many do. As so many do. This is actually, you know, it's a pre-chat GBT. Okay. It's, it's right. an AI, although it's a much more advanced AI form. Sure. And it's a really wonderful moment because at the, at the beginning of this relationship, and it's just purely the AI's in his head. He can hear it through a little earpiece. They have many intimate conversations and then they begin to separate because it's actually honestly a big part of scarcity is there's a moment in which he's speaking and having an intimate conversation with the ai he says wait a minute how many other conversations are you having right now at this exact moment and the ai tells him something around 400 or so yeah. and it immediately breaks him because he realizes that means he's not special we we value a resource more when we know it's scarce. I mean, we can call it. We, we do this when we hire economists. So the the economics profession, of course, values scarcity, and we realize that talk is cheap and it's really cost. Well, we also have to expend scarce resources to get people to come to campus. So or on the days that we interview them, it's a full it's a multiple day process. So we only get to interview two people on campus, and there's some people who we love to have on campus who we love to have as faculty, but they're honestly could get jobs that externally look better. I mean, Wheaton is an amazing place to work, but externally on paper might look better. And so how do we know whether they're authentically desiring Wheaton? I mean, most candidates apply to 80 or 90 jobs or whether they just, you know, were padding their applications just because they're majorly risk averse. And there's this thing that the account profession has done, which is they give each candidate two signals, which are just a, an additional piece that the, the centralized system allows you to put on your application to two different schools. And it says, I'm truly interested in the school, and they can't give it to more than two. So if a, if a, it allows a candidate to break this information problem, if because this signal is scarce, if they give you a signal, it means they're truly interested in working at your school. They're not just saying, I would love to work at Wheaton, and also simultaneously telling 400 other use, end users, or, or I mean, just kidding, <laughs> <laughs> potential employers that they're also interested in those jobs. Yeah, actually, that's fascinating. I mean, this is this this is one of the issues that we've talked about before. I don't, I don't want to go off this rabbit hole about even like voting and like having an actual vote be scarce actually might be more important. There's a little bit of a cost, for example, that's right. for casting a vote for this person, that person. Are you referring like, to? Oh, <laughs> I know. I, mean, I, mean, I don't. I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves okay. like future conversations with quadratic voting. But yes, there you go. That's right. So a little tease for anyone who wants to keep listening in the future. So I think though that scarcity. So let me let me let me paint you a picture of why I think that scarcity exists pre-fall. Pull out that brush. Oh man, I'm ready. Here it goes. So you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. I am. Yeah, I, th I thought so. Um, in the Great Divorce, when the protagonist hops on a, on a, a bus, an omnibus, and goes off to hell, or uh, walks walks further and further and further in the direction of hell, things get farther and further farther and further uh, apart. Yeah. And so like, I think at one point he's actually on a mission to go find Napoleon. Uh, in Napoleon, it's very, very yep. far off. And it looks actually, let's ready to read, read a quote. Are you ready to read a quote? Well, I've got the quote from The Great Divorce. Oh, actually, I didn't even know it was going to happen. Yeah. This is a, this is, no, we, this we, is we did not fantastic. script our conversation. No, this is amazing. Yeah. Do you want to jump into a quote then? You want me to read it? I would love to. All right, so uh, the, the protagonist is on a bus <laughs> on the way to what will be revealed as heaven from what will be revealed as hell. And the, his fellow traveler says, the trouble is they have no needs. 
you get everything you want, not very good quality, of course, by just imagining it. So talking about hell, you can get anything you want just by imagining it. That's why it never costs any trouble to move to another street or build another house. In other words, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. If they needed real shops, chaps would have to stay near where the real shops were. If they needed real houses, they'd have to stay near where builders were. It's scarcity that enables a society to exist. Wow. Lewis uses the word scarcity. It's amazing. It's I amazing. Know. I mean, effectively, he's getting on as interdependence. So he's basically getting yeah. to it. Is, is that scarcity makes one, makes one need the cobbler, mm-hmm. right? They need the butcher, mm-hmm. and therefore they have to live. Not only do they need the butcher and they need the cobbler, but even going further, they have to actually live nearby the cobbler and nearby the butcher in order to um, have the services, which means they actually have community. Yeah. And so this is why I was going to say, like, I think one could possibly imagine, it's very hard for, actually for me to do this, but you could imagine potentially uh, a world without scarcity that's before the fall, that potentially with every step one took, the earth grew with a direct proportion to that step, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, if it grew bigger and bigger and bigger, because obviously, if, if I mean, if the earth is the exact size it is, as it take a step, um, the earth is scarce, but the very, the very size of it means that there's scarcity. But one can imagine, or one can imagine, for example, too, every time you pick an apple, an apple immediately grows back, right? The, the very moment I do it, it's, it's gone. So therefore, it's, there, it's constantly there. Uh, this actually, to me, is really sad because this actually, this, this well, is red. Keep going. I'm going I'm to push back. Push away. So I know in previous conversations, I've taken your side, but you know, we're doing a podcast now, so I got yeah, to yeah. be antagonistic. I would like that. Uh, is that scarcity? Like, does the world have to get larger? If the if the explorer or if the apple partaker mm-hmm. was like, I just want one apple. And the apple was there for them to take, but there weren't... An, another apple doesn't necessarily have to grow up unless other people really desire an apple. That's, actually, this is actually, I was going to say this. I think that like, the world before the fall had the same loss of scarcity of today. That's, this is this where I'm thinking. However... Shortages would not occur because there would not be the desire. The demand function would be different. But if there's, but scarcity is relative. So if everybody said, "I have enough," then by definition, there's not scarcity, right? Because therefore, they, no, no, no one, no one wants another apple. We're all good on apples. That's what you're saying. Yeah, we had enough. We had enough apples. So it's not the quantity. It doesn't. The, scarcity doesn't require to to avoid scarcity. It doesn't require that there's infinite of something. It only requires that there's more freely available than desire for that resource. I don't know, though, to what extent this still means that even in this in this kind of construct that um, I have an apple and I'm the only one who happens to want an apple and no one else wants an apple. Therefore, that's, I'm satisfied no one else wants it. The, we still have a problem, though, of having a non-need upon others. Right? Yeah. And I do think that maybe if there's going to be an angle for scarcity, I think it might be that. Like, I think yeah. the conversations, the intuition of the user of the operating system that he fell in love with her. Yes. Uh yeah. I think that might hold, there's something special about us having this conversation in this moment in time and not having a simultaneous conversation with infinite others. There's also something beautiful about not knowing all things, but going through it, like throughout time. Like Adam can choose to name all the animals, but he names them sequentially, not instantaneously. He might have a conversation with Eve one day about the incredible reality that she was born out of a rib. And then... And then the next day, like, talk about deeper things regarding medical procedures or who knows what they discussed. Um, but I think that process was scarce and beautiful. Like, they might have liked to, maybe maybe they were satisfied. Maybe it wasn't scarce. Well, I mean, I still want to 
focused on this whole idea of interdependence. And maybe I'm going too far here. I, I want to be a person who is very mindful of toxic nostalgia and thinking about, oh, like, you know, things are different now than they used to be. But when you read the quote from The Great Divorce and like people moving apart, they don't, they don't need each other anymore. I think I have this deep intuition, like right now, for example, with um, remote work becoming increasingly prevalent amongst white collar jobs. And you see, for example, in the hottest housing markets like Bozeman, Montana. Um, and of course, people actually, I mean, they still have the laws of scarcity and they still are obviously living in places that are within driving distance of things they physically still need, right? So that still occurs. However, in a way that I think they have this raw intuition of like, oh, people are moving away from each other. They're just seeking individual desire of maybe it's um, beauty outside their window. And they're increasingly living potentially like lonely lives. Yeah. And that really bothers me. Yeah. Like, I mean, not for that individual, it's more, it's, bother, it's a societal bother. Right. Well, I think for the individual and the society. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, I, I, I think oftentimes I'm like, well, I wouldn't make that choice. I mean, the, the choice, to be honest, though, is somewhat tempting. I mean, there's a temptation to that choice because, like, I mean, I don't particularly find the suburbs that beautiful. Um, when I walk around the street, I love my neighbors. I love my community, but I don't really feel um, a sense of, like, awe and inspiration by the well-manicured lawns of the suburbs. I know some people do, but that's not really what speaks to me. So there's a temptation I have to maybe, like, say, yes, I would love to have remote work and live in an area that I just always think is a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. But I, I've never actually wanted to actually pursue that because the cost. And the cost is effectively people, relationships, mm -hmm. and being around individuals. And I do feel like increasingly as society removes historic constraints that force one to live in close proximity. Um, oftentimes, by the way, with neighbors we don't choose, and we have to get to know them, we have to get to know them, um, that creates a beautiful sense of interdependence. I think it's the interdependence. And I, I think Lewis is onto something because it's not like in hell, in his view of hell, idea, idea of hell, people couldn't choose to live in proximity, but it's just always easier. I think we have this distorted, after the fall, I think we have this distorted understanding of the good. Like we don't even understand what truly brings us happiness. And like how many times have you enjoyed talking to someone more, but it's just more convenient to go through drive-through than like walk into, walk into the restaurant or something like that where like, it's just a little nudge. And when we truly are dependent on one another, it nudges us to do what's actually healthy for us. Like it's another form of grace since our fallen desires don't always lead to what tru truly gives life. Like I wonder if it's it's hard to define in these the, the terms of scarcity or abundance. It's more of like f fractured desire. Yeah, and I think also like, obviously this discussion one could hear it and say, oh wow, Time is a scarce resource. I must protect that time very, very much. Well, time is a scarce resource. Like my, we, right now, you and I are together. We're saying no to other things, mm -hmm. and therefore, it's a really great signal to each other. Thank you, Tim. Oh, yeah, thank you. Friendship. But simultaneously, I think some people sometimes become miserly on this. They yeah. say, "Oh, because I oh, now you've illuminated me to that idea that time is scarce. I'm going to hoard, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to share that." And that, that's also highly problematic. Highly but that's problematic. also a form of spending it. Hoarding it is spending it on yourself or on individual hobbies. That's right. We're always spending it. That's you can't right. not spend it. You can't not spend it. You can't not spend it. But it's more so like how are you using it, right? Mm -hmm. Are you using this for something greater than yourself, something that's better, uh, something that's, that's seeking virtue, right? These are, these are things that I think that, that oftentimes, um, <clears throat> like, you know, for example, when I, I, when I, when I think about people who uh, they decide like, oh, time's the time. I, I heard one time someone say, time is the only truly scarce resource. I actually feel intuitively know this. Like, well, actually, everything's scarce. Uh, but they say, well, therefore, I'm going to make sure that I effectively use mine very wisely and don't share it. And I find that to be very problematic. 
like very much so. I want I want to talk about the greatest limitation of time, which you already sort of hinted at, which is mortality itself. Okay. And I think you're ready for this because I've I've read your your essay and I've Thanks read for reading it. Yeah, I've, I loved it. I think it's great. Um, how is mortality a gift? Well, I think that without, so I, I think without infinite good uses of our time, it would sour. So I think that there's a danger in abundance in a different sense of the word than we maybe normally think of it, but in having more of a, of a good than worthy uses of that good. So if we had more time available to us, but nothing that would truly give life in its use, then that also becomes problematic for us. And I think that's the insight of all of these authors or what maybe these authors are grasping at when they write fiction about being immortal, that it seems to sour we have this intuition that it will eventually become something that we lament. And, and I think that that's right. I think that once we were separated from the only infinite thing, and that is God, then we no longer had worthy uses of our time forever. And so it was only a mercy. That was, it, was, it was after we had been separated from God that we were cut off from the tree of life. And that might have in and of itself been a mercy to prevent us from having more of a resource than worthy uses of that resource. All right, I'm gonna ask you a question. It's gonna cut right to the heart here, maybe. Okay. Unless you're ready to read your quote. No, like no, 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 right. no, okay, no, please don't. Yet. If medical advances made it possible to seek mortal immortality, mm -hmm. live forever, mm -hmm. would you personally seek it? No, I don't think so. Why not? Because surely you seek penicillin, you seek things to extend yeah. your life. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you you, you extend you, you you extend things that not only avoid avoid morbidity, and avoid things like just dying early. Mm -hmm. You also presumably would if, if it, say, for example, based upon your family history, your expected lifetime was say eighty eight years old. If there's something that you could do, maybe some kind of medicine or some kind of uh, nutritional habit to extend your life to maybe ninety five. Yeah. Uh, you probably do it. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you probably go to maybe 120 if you could. So let me give you the intuition. Let me, yeah, let me, let me hear it. Here's so I think we all have this intuition about abundance without good uses, but we might not have it as as acutely as I'm articulating it. So like, what if you could have infinite time, but you were utterly unhealthy, like you could hardly move at all. So you were in, like not a veg, you were in a conscious, but state, but unable to use your body. Would you want that? Oh, I don't, I don't think I would. I don't think most people would. I think yeah. most people would be, so there's an extreme example of having way more of a resource than good things to use that resource with. So once you're like cut off from the good uses of that resource, then, and so I think the same is true here, but I think it would take us a lot longer to realize it. And 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 I'm gonna go with like an Aquinas way of thinking, but it's it's not so much that that the exact numerical quantity that matters, it's that a finite amount exists. Do you think it's also a function of, so was, what if I told you though, that like you and your peers, your cohort would, are also extending your life at the exact same time. So I think oftentimes people, first off, there's this science fiction, like descriptive horror of living forever as your body's also age, which mm -hmm. I, I find that trope to be actually very interesting of like, yeah, what if you had immortality, but your body was aging? Mm -hmm. that, be, I think everyone says no to that. Sure. So yep. everyone says no to that. But I think another one of these issues is like, that oftentimes you think of is like, oh, I don't want to age alone. Mm -hmm. Even if my body's not aging per se, I don't want to be a person who outlives my cohort, outlives mm -hmm. my children, outlives mm -hmm. my grandchildren, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But I'm assuming that you would still would prefer not to seek a approaching immortality life, even if all of your peers were doing it with you. Yeah, and I think it would take us a lot longer. To, I think most people would come to that conclusion, but it might take them several thousand years. 
You know, like I think eventually in the same way you you might you you got tired probably of your childhood toys at some point. I don't know if that's true. You, Actually, I, I, def- I definitely did. However, Thank I will tell you though, I have definitely stored all of my childhood Lego bricks awaiting my children to play. And they did. That's Although, right. they didn't play as much as I thought. Oh, that's right. so painful. I, it's so painful, isn't it? It's something, yeah. I know, you're like, no. I've been, I've been hoarding this and saving this for, <laughs> for if, decades. Before you even met your mother. <laughs> no. Oh, tragic. Oh, so very much so. But, but I think that, I think that the intuition is a good one because I think that next closest to God is things that are made in the image of God, which is other humans. Yeah. Um, and I think that gives like an echo of the goodness of having eternity. But I think even your best friends, after several thousand years, you'd be like, this, this was good for a time. This was very good for a time, but it wasn't meant to be forever. That's right. And also, we, we tire of experience, potentially. Mm-hmm. Like, like, are there new experiences to have? And also, this question I bring up, too, also, we have the factor around us that they're suffering in the world. right? So some people, for example, they say, I, I don't want this. Um, poverty or whatnot. But of course, we can if we try to even put that put that aside. But I, I want to ask you another question, though. So you personally would not pursue immortality mm-hmm. if medically available. Mm-hmm. Would you say that Christians ought not to? Or put this way, maybe phrase it a little differently. If you had a very good friend who was um, who was a Christian, and there's a pill that exists, and there's a pill that exists, and they said, and they said, I want to take it. I'm going to take it. Yeah. Would you? Would you would you tell them not to? Yeah, I think that. So I think we're our ultimate driver is love, and one of my favorite my favorite pieces of writing it come from Thomas Chalmers, which is the I think it's the expulsory power of a greater love, and he just writes about how the way we give up lesser goods is not by like deciding with all our heart that we don't you know we want to abstain. It's turning our head, turning our view, turning our vision to something that we love even more. And I think ultimately we're supposed to be driven by this love for God and that that ought to displace our deep and true love for friendship for one another, not displace it, but like help us realize its order, that it is a lesser love. And that if you, if you wanted to live for, if you were my pet friend and you were thinking about taking this pill that would prevent you from having direct access to God for eternity, I think I would desire for you to have a more complete consuming love for God. And I would be concerned that like, and, and, I, and I would empathize because I would also want to take the pill at many times. But I would, in my better moments, think you're going to miss out on something so much greater by constraining yourself to this life forever. Actually, the intuition I think is great because your intuition is basically you're saying, I have a very, very strong, strong feeling that that Christian brother or sister should not take that pill because they are by definitions saying that they are not going to enter paradise, right? Yeah. They're not yeah. going to be have communion with God. Um, it, I, I think it's interesting, right? My my brother-in-law well, works at a different university, uh, Christian students though, uh, and he asked all the students in class, how many of you would do this if it's medically available? Yeah. And these are just undergrads who have not thought about it, yeah. right? And he said, all of them um, said no. Like he, said, he said, on average, maybe one student out of like 30 will say yes. To take the pill. To take the pill. But all of them have this intuition of like, no, you don't do that. And I think the intuition is exactly what you said. I think they kind of know like, well, immortality means constant separation. It's constant, constant, constant separation from God. Yeah. Um, and there will not be that full unity that's there at the end. And But most of them are like, no, I'm not, I, I'm not gonna take it. I think for many, many reasons as well. I think I think there's multiple reasons. I think it's also maybe potentially that these the students, I think it's actually very encouraging that these students have internalized 
um, effectively a non-humanist approach to life, that um, there is something after, there's something better out there, and we're separated from that right now. But I think you have a you, you have a quote you want to read though. Well, no, well, I, I, I mean, I, another thought you spawned, but we only have oh. ten minutes, so we got to give up the room. Yes, that's right. Oh man, okay. So, so the thought that comes, I should I should continue the conversation, keep it authentic. Uh, an idea that that sparked for me though is there's this flip side, the idea of assisted suicide. What if you have? What if you naturally have cured all remaining disease, so that it requires a volitional act to cut short your life? Meaning, meaning that does, your does natural state that? would be that you would live. You don't have to take a pill. Yeah. Your natural state yeah. is just to live forever. So yes. you got to ch- choose to exit. Choose termination. Maybe this is too. Maybe this is too hypothetical for to be relevant. Well, I mean, then again, the pill the pill makes you live forever without aging is also quite hypothetical. That's true. <laughs> so we're we're in that world. Next level hypothetical. Yeah, next level. So you're saying would one t- choose the pill? Well, it, it, it's interesting because in many t- types of like thought experience, I think oftentimes people do say that they would actually eventually decide to terminate. I mean, I, actually- Yeah, this, but, th- but th- that feels very wrong. Like assisted suicide oh, feels like morally- it, It's utterly dark. It's utterly dark. I want to make that very clear. It's utterly, utterly dark and spoiler alerts right now. So spoiler alerts. This is how the show The Good Place ends. It's like the very end of The Good Place, which, which is like basically heaven. Um, the very end of it is like, okay, this is the, like once you've come through full experience, uh, the very, very end is there's a room which you terminate. Because people eventually say, I'm tired. I don't want to do, I don't want to do this anymore. And so it, it turns on non-existence. That's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. But it's also though a worldview of its experiences of what you're doing. That's, that's what, that's because you even brought yourself, like you're not saying, for example, uh, your, your opposition to living forever is because you're separating yourself out from God. That was your opposition. Mm-hmm. I think many people's opposition, opposition to living forever is boredom is the experiences will become tiresome. But I don't think that's necessarily wrong too. I think that there's a finite amount of good use of our time. That's, that's what you already said. You so said it's that the same intuition I, too. It's the same intuition, but it's a little bit different. One is all about like, oh, is my pleasure exceeding my cost? And actually it's also, it's just like a cost benefit analysis. Like is living our day better than not? Right, that's, that's that simple. Yours actually is a deeper one though of like, am I going to be united? Right? Am, am I going to be find completion and united to God? Mm-hmm. Right. That's 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 your intuition. But the question I have is, what if it what if it requires an act on your part? Like all genetic decay has been removed. There is no way that anybody dies except by choice. It's not like an act to live forever. Default is you live forever. I think it got too hypothetical. I I, I don't think this is a relevant point. But like, it it's hard for me to psychologically separate this from assisted suicide, and yet I'm I. I I intrinsically like feel very that it's very problematic that assisted suicide is very problematic and yet I would think if that was the default state at some point I would want to be with God one of the reasons we had this raw intuition with Enoch is because I think that you fundamentally believe I, I assume this is true in you do not determine your life mm-hmm. and I think, I think your intuition first off I think it also I think it's one of the reasons why also it's hard to imagine taking a pill because that also gives one determination. Like I determined that I live forever. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think we as humans are so guilty of like thinking we actually can determine our futures. We can determine how many children we have. We can determine all these different types of things. Uh, and I think that the reason why you have this aversion 
because you're basically bringing up this like this flip. Well, if the living forever is problematic because I never die and therefore I'm separate from God, what about physicists assisted suicide? Yeah. But I think the core theme to both these ends of the spectrum are like you do not determine your fate. You do not determine your lifespan. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that 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 seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. But but the default is it's infinite. It does feel like you'd have to Anyways, let's move on. Let's move on. We've only got a couple minutes before we gotta give up the room. So maybe can I can I end us? I would love that. Or do you want we No, please. Okay. So uh I've been thinking about this idea of scarcity and a specific psalm. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, in Psalm 46, verse 10, we read a famous thing that God says. He, he says, be still and know that I am God. And I think that this is like an insight in a world, at least in, in, in our day and age, where we have like extra storage that we pay for to keep all of our crap. Like we do not live in a lot of scarcity on certain dimensions. But two things that are extremely scarce for us right now feel like they are time and attention. Everything wants our attention. Everything wants our time. And I think that God has given us an insight of a dimension through which we can demonstrably reveal our love for him. That, that both is, is meaningful for us and allows us to overcome this information problem. Sometimes I don't even know, like, do I truly love God? And he says, here's how you can, here's how you can demonstrate it to yourself and to others. Give me your two, two most valuable possessions, your time and your attention. Be still and know that I am God. And I think that's really in this light of scarcity, like God left us a gift of a way for us to reveal our love for him in a way that was meaningful, even though we are no longer like the widow. We can't just give a mite. We can't just give a couple coins. Like we have enough food. We have enough clothing. We have scarce time and attention. That's right. I mean, time, time is the treasure. Time is the treasure. And so who are you giving your time to? Who are you giving your time to? That's excellent. That's good. Well, this has been a good conversation. I, I, I enjoy the fact that I, I was able to um, ha- walk through your essay and what you think about scarcity. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thanks for giving it some attention. Oh, absolutely. We'll see you next week. All right.